Hi, I'm Sean, and I hope you tune into my interview show called Tuesday Cafe every Tuesday morning at 10 on 88.5 WMNF. I interview environmentalists, politicians, social justice activists, academics, and other experts about topics that impact you right here in the Tampa Bay area. I focus on issues that are important locally and across the whole state of Florida. The show is called Tuesday Cafe with Sean Canan. It's every Tuesday morning at 10 on 88.5 FM, WMNF Tampa, and on WMNF.org. Welcome to True Talk on WMNF 88.5 with Ahmed and Samar. On today's program, we're going to be speaking about the United Arab Emirates' influence um, over U.S. politics. That and also someone I will be speaking about the uh, World Cup that's coming up. I'm planning, trying to pl- cue my music, but Frank, it says it's not responding. And um, I'm a little out of breath because I ran in here, so I don't know if it's noticeable or not. Um, okay. So, uh, on today's, uh, like I said, um, there's a lot of talk. I'm actually trying to queue up my guest. A bunch of things happening on my computer at the same time. Um, World Cup is actually starting on November 20th, which is uh, just a couple of days away. A lot of criticism happening uh, about the games, um, some are saying that it's because of some sort of uh, racism or anti-Arab racism. It's the first time that the World Cup is actually held in the Middle East. And um, some people are complaining um, that it shouldn't be happening there for a variety of reasons. Um, but uh, I think a lot of those reasons are really, or a lot of the criticism is due to complaints. I mean, due to anti-Arab racism or bias. Um, But I'm going to get my guest on and uh, we'll be back on. This is True Talk on WMNF. Ich bin ein 
صحابي حب ولا خرابي عطيتهم مترابي فرشو شو كفرش لازرابي عبال روحي من عيبش على قرابي رقت ونحلم وفكت نجري على سرابي وفي غيبوبة ايه وينك يا سحوبة ايه وطلعوا ذيوبة ايه وناس خوانا Welcome back to True Talk on WMNF 88.5 with Ahmed and Summer. Um, Summer, um, that was Balti again, your uh, favorite artist. Yeah, I like him, Ahmed. You introduced me to him. I never heard of him before. Um, yeah, well, he's a Tunisian uh, rap artist, uh, becoming more and more popular in the Arab world. And um, yeah. Um, I think you should listen to him more often. I am, by listening to True Talk. Right. Um, so on today's program, we're going to be talking about a couple of things. One, um, we'll be later on the program, we'll be speaking about the Qatar uh, hosting Qatar hosting uh, the World Cup, which is starting in a couple of days. But first, we'll be talking about uh, new revelations on the UAE interference in U.S. politics. And we'll have on a, with us... Um, um, person, one of the writers that wrote that uh, article, Eli uh, Clifton. Uh, but were you surprised by this uh, report that uh, the UAE is meddling? I mean, the UAE, if uh, people are not familiar with it, that's the country that has uh, Dubai or one of its cities is Dubai or one of its states. Uh, were you surprised at the level of meddling that the UAE has been doing in the United States somewhere by, the, by these revelations? Or is that something you already knew? I already knew because of uh, the several articles that would show up from time to time to talk about, um, you know, the politics of the uh, United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia. But I think Eli wrote a couple of months ago an interesting also article that we can discuss later on about, uh, I think uh, he was arguing uh, that the United Arab Emirates money and their contribution to think tanks uh, was able to label the Republican Guard, the Iranian Republican uh, Guard as a terrorist organization. I think Eli can talk about it. What surprised me, Ahmed, was the investigation itself that it was handled by U.S. intelligence. Mm. So this raises red flags that maybe there was some 
serious compromise to national security. And this is, I think, what Eli can explain to us, because when they published an article, I think it was the Washington Post, the, 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 the information was secret. We can't, we can't find out why would the U.S. intelligence be investigating inside the USA. There must be a breach to national security. Right. But really, what it is, I have no idea. And when I tweeted about it in the Arabic language, again, everybody said, you know, this is exaggeration. Everybody is involved in lobbying in D.C. And this is what we're ha- hoping that Eli can uh, explain. Like, okay, everybody is doing some sort of lobbying. Why pick on the United Arab Emirates? Okay, with that said, uh, we're now joined by Eli Clifton. Um, welcome to True Talk, Eli. Thank you for having me. Yeah, Eli, you're welcome. Eli is an investigative, Eli Clifton is an investigative journalist uh, who focuses on money and politics and U.S. uh, foreign policy. He previously reported for the American Independent um, New Network and Think Progress and Interpress Service. He's also the co-author of the Center for American Progress's report, Fear, Inc., which uh, we enjoy. Were you uh, part of Fear, Inc., one or two? I was part of a Fear Inc. one. Okay, there was so much fear the that you, they actually had to do two of them. And exactly, fear, exactly. Yeah, fear Inc. Correct me if I'm wrong, and maybe you could tell us a little bit about it. But it focused focused on how there was just uh, industry of uh, different uh, organizations and foundations that are actually trying to spread fear um, about the Muslim community or Islam in America, uh, also known as you know Islamophobia. Uh, was that what it's about? Exactly, exactly. We tracked a number of uh, philanthropic foundations that uh, may or may not have been aware of the role that their grants were playing in really fanning the flames of Islamophobia in the American political discourse as well as in the media. Um, these were organizations that often gave to, um, you know, not in all cases, but in many, these were sort of family foundations or philanthropic organizations that, that did give money to a lot of good causes, but you know, when you really started to look closely at their financials and that the grants that they were writing, they were giving, you know, often in some cases, millions of dollars to organizations that were uh, putting forward at the time what were some of the more uh, toxic anti-Muslim uh, tropes that were prevalent in the in the American political discourse. This was around 2011, um, and this was sort of in the wake of um, of the of Obama's uh, well the, his first political camp his first presidential campaign, which uh, I think really was sort of a turning point for the uh, sort of metasizing of these conspiracy theories and and anti-Muslim tropes. Uh, I, I think there's a sort of a misnomer that these really took off after 9/11. Uh, and truth be told, when you look at polling, really these sentiments really took hold in a major way uh, post-2008 uh, after Obama's election and that campaign, which uh, seemed to bring out the absolute worst in in in, in the American media and, and, as I say, in the political discourse. Right. And I know you're uh, today we're talking about the UAE, um, a foreign government's impact or influence on uh, U.S. politics. Uh, some of it uh, may uh, or may not be illegal. But just going back to this Fear Inc. report, how much did you guys track? And I remember it was like a huge number. How much was spent uh, in that 10-year period or however many years that you were tracking uh, that was spent on uh, creating this kind of fear of Muslims in America? 
Well, I think uh, we we ended up tracking was something like uh, $78 million, I think, that had uh, funneled into these uh, anti-Muslim uh, organizations. So th that was a relatively small sample. We were just looking at a handful of organizations that we thought were some of the uh, of the worst offenders, as it were, uh, as well as uh, some of who are the biggest funders, as it were, of, of these efforts. Um, so again, this was this was relatively small. Uh, uh, portion of probably the funds as well as to the extent that this network existed. It was, um, I'm sorry, it was $42 million we tracked from 2001 to 2009. So just in eight years, it was $42 million mm -hmm. that, that that we were looking at that, that that funneled into these small numbers of groups. But again, this was just seven charitable organizations. Uh, probably the total was over $100 million, if not more, that went into the Islamophobia uh, network, as it were. But seven charitable groups alone contributed $42.6 uh, $42 dollars in uh, in eight years and uh, what Ahmed, I want sorry yeah. Ahmed I want to jump in because I've always wanted to ask this question and uh, good morning Eli thank you for being on true talk what prompted the investigation initially like why what made you look into uh, the idea that some charit charitable organizations might be involved in something so so grave and so uh, important uh, to the public discourse. I think it was that a number of us have been tracking uh, these anti-Muslim Islamophobic pundits, people like Pamela Geller, um, uh, Robert Spencer, uh, uh, Frank Gaffney, David Horowitz, for, for many years. And, and in fairness to them, these people didn't really change their message all that much uh, over the years. They've been pretty consistent in what they've been saying. What what I think sort of sparked our curiosity as well as our concern was seeing uh, the the uptick in the access that these people were getting to uh, to cable news, to talk radio, the fact that these were now people being put on to you know onto Fox News or even onto CNN as sort of one half or one side of a conversation that they they were being portrayed as well you know there's two sides to what was frequently the case was the discussion about the Islamic Community Center in Lower Manhattan. Manhattan, the so-called Ground Zero Mosque, and the, the the fact that this sort of had elevated into something in the national debate again, sort of centered around uh, Obama's uh, a first presidential run, was uh, concerning to us. That these were these were fringe voices that I think all of us had been slow to want to give too much attention to because you don't want to fan the flames of this type of uh, outright you know lies and conspiracy theories that that they had always been been trying to to spread. But the fact that suddenly what we saw this was sort of being, you know, elevated to a degree that that was deeply concerning, coinciding with Obama's, say, for his first presidential campaign, was uh, was something we wanted to look more closely at and ascertain, you know, who who was it that had been uh, enabling these people to sort of build up their audience and to build up their institutions uh, over the course of? Uh, it wasn't a coincidence that we looked at 2001 to 2009 uh, as being the period where it's like, well, who laid the groundwork for what we were with? Witnessing at that point. Um, if you're just joining us, this is True Talk on WMNF 88.5. We're speaking to Eli Clifton. He is now a senior advisor at Quincy Institute and investigative journalist at large at Responsible Statecraft. Um, formerly uh, was one of the authors of a, an important report called Fear Inc. When he was at Think uh, or when he was at the um, um, Center for American Progress. Um, he's here today to talk to us about the UAE influence on 
uh, U.S. politics. Final question about your work on Fear Inc. I'm sorry to digress, but what um, what are some of the biggest organizations? I guess the, these anti-Muslim organizations that were getting funding from these foundations, whether they knew uh, of their direct agenda or how much harm they're actually doing um, or not. Who are this, these seven recipients or the ones that were receiving the money to spend it on and to use it for anti-Muslim activities in America? Well, uh, I mean, the, the top ones were places like Middle East Forum, Center for Security Policy, David Horowitz Freedom Center, um, the Clarion Fund. Um, th- those were sort of the top ones that mm-hmm. we were looking at. Um, now, yeah, I, d- I didn't quite catch the first part of your question. Who were the... No, no, that is, d- that, d- is d- 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 that was okay. my question. Um, okay. but those names like Middle East Forum and Daniel Pipes and, like you said, Horowitz with the Freedom Center. Uh, and I remember during that time, these were very fringe voices that they didn't ever, you know, no one took them seriously in Washington, but over time... Um, they actually started becoming more and main, more and more mainstream. And even when Obama was in office, you saw it, like you said, come to a peak. But then further, when Trump came to office, he actually brought some of these people inside the White House. They were had a seat at the table, um, and you know they were bragging about it left and right. How much did they impact policy in the United States when it comes to Muslims? Or the Muslim you know, community. You know, you know, you know, that's still a story that I don't think has gotten the attention it deserves. And the the, the incident that I would point to as being, I, I believe, the biggest point of impact on terms of Muslim Americans and Muslims around the world, uh, and the influence of these people over the Trump administration was the Muslim ban. Um, and in a very tangible sense, uh, and in a very direct way. Uh, Frank Gaffney's Center for Security Policy probably plays a greater responsibility for that than any outside group that I can think of. Mm-hmm. They funded and commissioned what was a bogus poll by Kellyanne Conway's uh, polling firm. And actually, her polling firm ended up sort of saying that this was not scientific what they had done. But but they, they, they commissioned the first, the only piece of evidence that then candidate Donald Trump cited um, as evidence that American Muslims were somehow dangerous or were, were un, un, uh, disloyal um, and was used as the justification, the only, the only source cited by Donald Trump to back up his, at that point in time, proposed ban on on on, on Muslims uh, being able to enter the United States, who are obviously non-U.S. citizens, non-permanent residents. Although some permanent residents were 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 not were, were denied entry. Uh, but the point is, is that yeah, Donald Trump's Muslim ban was. Uh, you could arguably say that Frank Gaffney was the architect of it, and certainly the organization Center for Security Policy that he heads up was one of the most responsible for helping to uh, give the ammunition to Donald Trump. Uh, then can. Candidate Donald Trump uh, to try to justify such an extreme, extreme policy that was targeting Muslims. Myself, uh, actually, was a target of Frank Gaffney's attacks. At one point, we decided to host, I think it was in 2009, a um, kind of a, a meet and greet for Muslims uh, in Florida to go to the state capitol and meet their lawmakers. And Frank Gaffney actually flew all the way down to Tallahassee and they held a press conference on how dangerous this was. Um, uh, so, uh, we, we all, you know, we know Frank Gaffney in Florida, especially the Muslim community, but he's doing this or he was doing this across the country. But thank you again for your work on Fear Inc. I think there's, um, still more to be written uh, about that and, and the consequences, especially the impact that it has had overseas, uh, in, in foreign policy, directing foreign policy 
as well. Because one thing that I noticed about that report and uh, in general, the uh, anti-Muslim network in the United States or this Islamophobia, as some people describe it in Islamophobia industry, many of them overlap with the pro-Israel lobby. Um, I don't know if it, you know if it's design or not, but definitely many of these individuals, including Daniel Pipes and the others, are staunchly hardline uh, uh, pro-Israelis that are even to the right of Likud and and Benjamin uh, Netanyahu and others. I don't know if you've noticed the same thing. I don't remember if your report actually mentioned that, but do you have a comment about that? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. As the Amer- as the Israeli political discussion has shifted further and further to the right, the the narrative of Israel being you know sort of an ethno nationalist state engaged in a you know battle of civilizations uh, is is you know that there's some there's some cross pollination of of the debate where you know in Israel they say that and then here it gets picked up by again sort of usually folks on sort of the more conspiratorial end of the spectrum saying that well you know that there's a battle of civilizations between east and west between Muslims Muslims and Christians, um, and uh, or between uh, Muslims and Jews, and that this is uh, you know a, a battle that that Israel has been fighting and it's now being extending to here. Uh, again, I find what to be kind of intriguing is that is that the truth be told, you know, the the numbers of Americans who kind of bought into this narrative. It, and, and I think the George W. Bush administration, in a perverse sense, deserves some credit. They really tried to stomp this out early on after 9-11, saying that, you know, that, that the United States is not at war at Islam. Uh, and it, George W. Bush was, you know, visited a mosque. Um, and that there was an, a desire to try to keep this stuff outside of the acceptable debate. Um, and I think, I think Obama, again, in 2008, found himself in a difficult position because obviously he was a good target for these mm-hmm. people to try to spread these falsehoods and to fan the flames of these conspiracy theories, but unlike George W. Bush or really any other candidates who are in the field, uh, he wasn't able to rebut it because he, he didn't want to engage with it for totally understandable reasons. Because, and probably correctly, he assessed, I think, that um, you know if he tried to fight back or if he tried to engage with this stuff, it would probably just make it uh, worse. It wouldn't make it better. Uh, and that's how you had that you know sort of amazing moment when John McCain had to take a microphone away from somebody at one of his own rallies who was. Uh, ranting about how 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 Obama was a Muslim and so on and so forth and and McCain had to say you know hey that's not that's not mm-hmm. true you're 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 telling lies here um but i mean that was probably the most direct moment that a candidate had to actually confront it in that election cycle and uh and it wasn't Obama that did it uh and i think that that kind of you know puts into focus the fact that you know he he sort of faced a perfect storm that was very hard to push back on and and left him i i think feeling that 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 there wasn't much that he could do to make it better in the ways that uh, that in a very ironic sense people like George W Bush and John McCain were able to better address we're speaking to Eli Clifton um he is with the Quincy Institute an investigative journalist as well and now we want to talk about the topic we actually invited you to speak about, which is this new revelations, uh, investigative uh, intelligence report by the U- U.S. intelligence uh, community saying that the UAE is interfering in U.S. politics. Summer, uh, why don't you start with them? Yeah, Eli, I was uh, just talking uh, to Ahmed at the beginning of the show. And uh, when I tweeted about it in the Arabic language, so many people actually very politely it wasn't like they were bots or anything telling me but every other country uh, does lobbying uh, in the u.s and everybody is aware of the uh, israeli lobby for instance and how powerful they are so people were telling me so why pick on the united arab emirates and i think it's a legitimate question 
what is it that like made uh, U.S. intelligence services pay closer attention to this particular uh, lobbying in Washington, D.C.? I think that's an important question. Uh, I, I think that, and, and I think we should start off by saying that the report itself, uh, which was uh, created by the National Intelligence Council, which is sort of the, the hub for 18 U.S. intelligence agencies. Um, so it's sort of the preeminent place where the intelligence is brought together from the different uh, pieces of the U.S. intelligence community. Um, it is classified. Um, I have not read it, and the person who broke the story, John Hudson uh, at the Washington Post, he's an excellent journalist, uh, he also has not read it. He has only spoken to people who have read it. Now, based off of his reporting, it seems to actually kind of match up with a lot of things that many of us have reported on and observed that's in the public record already, involving the extent of UAE's uh, influence operations over the U.S. political debate. Now, the report, uh, according to Hudson, uh, describes illegal and legal attempts to steer U.S. foreign policy in ways favorable to the United Arab Emirates. Um, and it shows how the UAE, spanning multiple U.S. administrations, sought to exploit vulnerabilities in American governance, particularly the reliance on campaign contributions in our political system, our, our susceptibility to powerful lobbying firms, and lax enforcement of disclosure laws uh, uh, intended to guard against interference by foreign governments. And, and these are areas that a lot of us have been, have been reporting on the UAE for many years. Um, so at what level, it's not surprising. At the same time, it's really significant that the National Intelligence Council, it has now risen to that level where they are essentially saying the United Arab Emirates uh, uh, attempts to influence U.S. politics has risen to the level where it's actually becoming a national security concern. Now, I, I do understand the, the the point that people make about, well, what about other countries that do this? And what about the Israel lobby? Um, and I would just say that Israel uh, probably is quite a bit different because I think it very often operates through its ex extensive Jewish diaspora in the United States. And I say that as a Jewish American. Um, and that said, most Jewish Americans, I don't think, are particularly aligned with Israel or are part of this of this uh, uh, lobbying effort. Uh, but there still are a significant number that, that that do identify with with wanting to to promote the U.S.-Israel relationship. Um, so I don't think Israel has to act so uh, on its own, as it were, through foreign lobbying type of influence operations. They, they have, you know, there's a lot of. Of, of organizations that are based here that will do that for for Israel. Um, in the case of the UAE, uh, why people are concerned about it? I mean, I think I would start off by saying uh, it's because of the close relationship that the U.S. has had with the UAE that concerns people a lot. The UAE has gotten probably access to some of the most high-tech U.S. weaponry uh, that any country has gotten, except maybe uh, some NATO countries and Israel. Uh, there are also 5,000 U.S. troops in, in the UAE. And there's also the fact that the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia Arabia are seen to be very much in lockstep. And a lot of the actions taken by Saudi Arabia in Yemen or in the border of Jamal Khashoggi uh, are deeply problematic for the United States uh, and simply run counter to U.S. interests. And I think that that's a key thing that all of these foreign lobbying efforts try to uh, obfuscate. They, do, they want to pretend that there's no difference in interests between the United States and Saudi Arabia or the United Arab Emirates or Israel to take three examples. Um, and that is just, of course, that is false. Uh, and when you look at the scale of what the United Arab Emirates has been doing, uh, it's pretty stunning. I mean, just in terms of open source records that we can look at, between 2020 and 2021, registered foreign agents for Saudi Arabia made engaged in 10,000 political activities. Those are emails, conversations, contacts that they registered with under FARA on behalf 
of the United Arab Emirates. And Farah registered uh, agents for the United Arab Emirates gave half a million dollars in campaign contributions um, uh, between 2020 and 2021. Uh, they contacted more than 100 members of Congress uh, and they spent uh, since 2016, the United Arab Emirates spent $154 million on lobbyists uh, and probably hundreds of millions of more in ways that can't be tracked in donations to American universities and think tanks, uh, many of which then turned around to produce policy papers that were favorable to Emirati interests. Um, so I think what we're looking at here and why the NIC, if I had to speculate, uh, is very interested in this and has now uh, sort of assessed that this is actually a national security concern is that it's not that the Emiratis are doing something with a desired outcome that's different than what other countries might do. It's the fact that they are doing it at such a scale and perhaps with so much success that it actually does rise to the top of foreign influence operations being conducted by state actors, uh, in this case, um, coming out of the, the UAE. Um, and, and I think that that's something that, that, is, that is deeply concerning and something that I've, again, looked at in my own reporting for, for many years. Uh, and, and the way that the United Arab Emirates, especially in Washington, is seen as sort of, well, you know, th this Arab country that can do no wrong or little Sparta in the Middle East, as it's sometimes portrayed, or our, you know, our, our, our wall against Iran, or it's all of these sort of tropes about how the UAE and American interests are synonymous. And of course, that's false. But there's a lot of money going into trying to tell people otherwise. But to be fair here, Eli, uh, they're, are they violating American laws? Isn't it that they are taking advantage of the weakness of uh, laws that exist in the USA? I mean, do they have evidence? I know we don't have any information and detailed information about the investigation, but they are using what is out there. They're not twisting the arms of Americans and uh, uh, entrapping them and asking them to be lobbyists. I mean, we have all these uh, revolving door uh, of uh, people who were in power and then they open these firms and lobby firms and then... Um, we blame certain countries because uh, they have the ability, the financial ability to use them to their advantage. And my second question, what is it that the United Arab Emirates really wants uh, from spending all this money besides getting these weapons? Like, what is it they want? Is there a certain policy, a certain foreign policy that they want the USA to pursue? And this is why they are spending all this money. Mm -hmm. Uh, well, to answer the first part of your question, uh, well, no, it's not all legal. Um, a lot of it is, uh, and I think that you're right to point that out. Um, and I think the solution to that is obviously not to prosecute people. Nobody's saying that the UAE or its agents should be prosecuted, those of them that are following the law. There have been, however, proposals about how the law should be changed to probably curtail these actions, not just by the UAE, but all foreign governments. And some of these efforts, such as, you know, the, the recently bipartisan introduced legislation, uh, the, the Fighting Foreign Influence Act, would do things like force uh, nonprofits, which would include think tanks, to disclose their foreign government funding. It would uh, it would also uh, require for the, the very low bar of that if you're making a campaign contribution with a credit card, you should be able to provide a U.S. zip code. Um, and, and the measure that maybe foreign, uh, just like the revolving door you referred to, trying to stop that revolving door, it, it would mean that former uh, senior executive branch officials, as well as members of Congress and senior military officers, uh, could not go work for foreign governments. 
Um, so, so there are efforts to, to actually close these, these legal loopholes. Um, but the NIC, uh, without getting into specifics, did say that some of these actions in their assessment, again, it's not the Justice Department, did cross the line into criminal activities. Uh, and there's at least one good example where people were prosecuted and were convicted, where there were three former U.S. intelligence uh, and military officials who uh, pled guilty to providing sophisticated computer hacking technology to the UAE. The three of them agreed to pay $1.7 million to resolve it. Um, and uh, that was only, I believe it was last year. Um, so th- there are incidents, and, and of course there was the attempted prosecution of uh, of Barack, uh, the, the 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 fundraiser for for mm-hmm. Donald Trump. Uh, ultimately, he he beat those charges, uh, but there have been attempts to prosecute uh, some of these cases. Some of them su- successful, some of them not. Um, so I, I I don't quite agree that it's all been perfectly legal. Um, it, it has not been, and the NIC is saying it has not all been perfectly legal. But I think what they are highlighting is exactly what you've referred to, which is that some of this is part of our system and it's legal. Um, and it that doesn't mean it hasn't risen to be a national security concern. Um, and maybe that means that some of these laws should be changed. Maybe they should be clarified. Um, but we need to address this for what it is, legal or illegal. And if it's illegal, then that's probably a little easier to address. If it's all perfectly legal, but it's rising to the point of actually significantly trying to influence and shape U.S. policy, um, that's problematic, too, because you're not getting U.S. policy that's in the U.S. national interest, then you're getting U.S. policy that's in the UAE national interest, um, which goes to your second question about, well, what do they want? Um, they've certainly made it very clear they want hardline U.S. policies toward Iran. Uh, they have you know, certainly opposed the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal. They, uh, organ- I've noticed and I've reported on think tanks funded by Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates have pushed pretty hard to keep the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps uh, on the U.S. Uh, terrorism list, which is perceived as being a, an impediment to the JCPOA being being re-implemented. Um, and I, I, I don't want to downplay the, the role that weapons play. They want access to uh, highly sophisticated American weapons. Uh, and uh, to, to, to and, but more importantly, they want to keep uh, a U.S. commitment to the region and to the autocracies that dominate the region, namely Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. So they want the weapons, but they also want the military and political support that goes alongside that. Uh, I know this might not be um, 100% related, but it is related to our previous discussion, Eli. Were they involved in any way with uh, funding some think tanks or uh, non-profits uh, that contributed to the Islamophobia and rise of Islamophobia in the U.S.? Some people here say that um, they had an arm in it for the fear, for instance, of the spread of Islamic Brotherhood in, you know, after the Arab Spring, that maybe the Emirates also contributed to this uh, fear-mongering of Islam. They certainly, um, through their own messaging, as well as in the emails that were um, stolen from Yusuf al-Otaiba, the UAE's ambassador to the United States, it was evident that they uh, were, were obviously in favor of keeping the, the Muslim Brotherhood um, um, considered to be a terrorist organization. Uh, um, they, they they were very much opposed to uh, you know congressional efforts to walk some of that back. Um, so so in in that sense, yes, they they were 
they were involved in that. I, I think that for, from what I saw in those emails from Yusuf Halotaiba, uh, he was pretty eager not to have the Emirati fingerprints on any of that. Um, I think some think tanks probably did that they funded were probably putting out materials um, um, to, to maintain the, the terrorist designation on the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, but in terms of the really extreme Islamophobia, and I know some of that intersected with the Muslim Brotherhood uh, terrorist designation. Um, I haven't quite seen them engaging with the worst of the conspiracy theorists out there, uh, but I think that they played a role in it, and they certainly wanted to fan the flames of the concerns around the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, and, and I think some of it, I mean, I don't agree with it, but I think it's sincere. When you hear about the stories, even internally within the UAE, uh, the Emiratis are very, very fearful of the Muslim Brotherhood uh, to a pretty paranoid degree. Um, so keeping them on, keeping them, you know, maintaining a designation here for them would, would kind of go hand in hand with that. Uh, whether that crosses the line into Islamophobia at times probably does, uh, but I think it comes from a different place. It comes to their from their own uh, fears of instability. It comes from their own fears of you know popular uprising. It comes from their own fears of another Arab Spring. Um, the types of things that you know autocracies are afraid of, which is popular populist movements and popular uprisings. And that goes back probably to, you know, to connect it back to what do they want from the United States? They need those weapons. They need the, the surveillance technology. They need all those things that are not just for external use or for defensive purposes, but for internal repression as well. If you're just joining us, this is True Talk on WMNF 88.5 with Ahmed and Summer. We're speaking to Eli Clifton. He's a senior advisor at Quincy Institute and investigative journalist at large at the Responsible Statecraft. We're talking to him about an article um, that he um, uh, co-authored about UAE and a new intelligence report by the U.S. intelligence community highlighting uh, UAE meddling, um, possibly illegal, illegally meddling in U.S. politics to influence politics. Um, uh, Eli, as far as who, who does the UAE consider to be their enemy? Uh, other than, I mean, I know you mentioned already uh, Iran and keeping designation. Who else in the region are they considering? Do they see as an enemy and have been working against? Well, def well, definitely in the supportive role they've played for the Saudi campaign in Yemen, it's clear that they consider the Houthi rebels to be problematic. Um, and again, going back to sort of their concerns about populist uprisings, they are very concerned about um, the, the the Muslim Brotherhood. Um, and they are also very concerned about Qatar, uh, and obviously that the part of the influence operation that they have run in Washington uh, is well established, extended to uh, their efforts to sort of backstop their efforts and the Saudi efforts in the, in the blockade of, of Qatar during the uh, Trump administration. This was something that they you know, maybe wouldn't have tried with another administration. They felt they had the support and a close relationship with not just through Thomas Barack, but through people like Jared Kushner to the Trump administration. And they felt like they could uh, uh, advance an agenda and policies that, uh, you know, frankly, hey, this runs counter to a lot of regional interests. It runs counter to American interests to have this going on. Uh, but they were able to push it through for longer than many of us would have thought they could have. Um, so I think that, yeah, that, that certainly the, the role that Qatar plays is something that, uh, again, can't be disaggregated from the Iranian and the Muslim Brotherhood influence. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the, the, they definitely have regional concerns uh, about forces that they think could undermine their their autocratic government. I mean, isn't it the bottom line is that they are spending all this money just to remain in power? 
and and they feel yeah, like so. had they not, you know that 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 is under threat. Yes, and and it's interesting because it's very clear that given their use of pretty extensive resources inside the United States to shape U.S. policy, that they consider a top tier uh, national concerns national security concern from their perspective is maintaining uh, a U.S.-UAE relationship which uh, doesn't get challenged by factors inside the United States that, again, makes this sort of false argument that U.S. and Emirati interests are synonymous um, and that maintains uh, uh, a very minimal degree of questioning of the what the relationship looks like or how it's been played out from a U.S. perspective, uh, you don't see a lot of opposition to it when when they ask for uh, you know congressional approval for some pretty sophisticated weapons exports. Uh, you don't see denunciations of the UAE uh, for human rights. Uh, um, uh, abuses that they may undertake. Um, you don't see the United States say no to the United Arab Emirates very often. Right. Um, and I think the fact that you know that they've done a great branding campaign, both with lobbyists and with members of Congress, but also you know in a broader sense, in a probably more expensive sense, with you know Emirates Airlines and with their sponsorship of events um, that goes well beyond just the political space. It becomes a cultural. Um, uh, touchstone, which, um, you know, even the branding of Dubai is a luxury de uh, tourism destination. I think all of these things uh, play into this notion that, that they want to present themselves as being, um, you know, a very modern place, a very open-minded place, and a place that you aren't going to really uh, give too much consideration or thought to to the export of sensitive technologies, of weapons, and of uh uh, a political relationship and military support that um, th 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 that's unusually close. I mean, do you think that they could survive in the region without the protection and the support of the United States? I think they could, but they would have to change some of their policies toward their neighbors. Or as they are, <laughs> like to remain in power as they are and remain, uh, I mean, it seems like they're investing a lot in that... Uh, relationship. They want it to be, would you say that they want it to be, you know, kind of similar or they're following the, I guess, the example of Israel of wanting to have that special relationship that the U.S. would either defend them, you know, using their military or not oppose them as long as they're uh, seen as a, you know, a very close ally to the United States. Other uh, people in the region would not, um, you know, uh, take a shot at them or attack them. Or that when they, you know, crack down on dissent, that uh, the United States will look the other way. Yeah, I, th I think that's exactly right, and I, and I think we should uh, at least sort of, you know, try to entertain the idea of what would it look like if the United States didn't, you know, provide all of these, you know, this, the, the, the the security, the the aid to Israel, or sell all these weapons to the United Arab Emirates or to Saudi Arabia, or offer security guarantees to Israel, um, or I mean, there's, there's there's a push even to get security guarantees for Saudi Arabia or have uh, so many troops in both Saudi Arabia and in the United Arab Emirates. It gives these countries. Um, a sense of security with a status quo. And that status quo is, is not actually beneficial for the region or for the United States, or I would argue even for these countries themselves. This leaves that, you know, it lets Israel maintain an occupation of, 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 of the West Bank and Gaza. It allows Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates to, to not have to engage in internal reforms uh, that, that might make them more inclusive societies. It allows them to maintain very hostile relationships with some of the other major countries in the region, like Qatar and Iran, and maintain, uh, you know, in the case of Saudi 
Saudi Arabia, a pretty brutal and devastating war that's led to famine in Yemen. And part of it is that these countries have never had to look at it as a trade-off. They've never had to look at uh, the notion that these hostilities and these destabilizing actions are something that that ultimately they have to pay the price tag for because they're able to get this backstop and this support from the United States. Um, and it keeps the United States engaged in the region. Uh, and it keeps these countries constantly in a state of, um, of um, you know, of frankly being at war or engaged in occupation and engaged in strengthening their own internal security apparatuses to uphold what might be an untenable status quo. So they've never had to come and look at what would be a security architecture in the region that could work for them. What would be a security architecture in the Middle East that actually could be self-sustaining, that could leave the region able to manage its own security concerns, that could leave the region stable. Um, I, I think what we're seeing is this is just one symptom is this lobbying uh, illicit or legal by the United Arab Emirates. This is how the sausage gets made. This is how you maintain an illiberal order in the Middle East. This is how you maintain a status quo that is unstable, that's bad for human rights, it's bad for security, that's fundamentally bad for the people who live in these countries, um, but it's made possible by the steady flow of weapons and security guarantees and American troops and intelligence capacity uh, that can support both a foreign policy as well as domestic policies that are based off of repression. I think a lot of these uh, countries, uh, repressive regimes in the Middle East, and you know, I'm originally from Egypt. Um, we have a, there's a very repressive, uh, you know, uh, dictator there. Um, oftentimes, the United States looks at the region from a security lens, and you know, they want to maintain stability. And uh, a lot of times that these uh, repressive countries, that's what they're selling, saying, you know, choose us, our policies, because the alternative is really bad. The alternative are these, you know, Al-Qaeda types, and uh, you'll have chaos in the region, and Israel will not be safe. Um, and in a way, they justify their repressive, uh, you know, oppression on their people and cracking down dissent and not having any type of political reforms or democracy or freedom. But... In the long run, is that isn't that? Would you say that that's actually counterproductive, and that's uh, makes America actually less safe? Uh, because if if they're cracking down on their own people with the support of the United States and with U.S. weapons, wouldn't some of those people that are being cracked on down upon um, uh, eventually turn to violence because they can't find any nonviolent way? to settle their grievances, and would they eventually turn their attention to the United States? Absolutely, and we have one example after another of these types of internal repression that's very often backed by the United States. Um, it radicalizes people. I mean, that's that's the nature of how these things work. When you look at the origins of Al-Qaeda, when you look at the origins of the Muslim Brotherhood, when you look at any of these movements, um, you know, very much they are the products of repression. They're the product of undemocratic societies. They are the product of places where people have no other outlets. And they look around and they, you know, look at, well, and who are the who are the actors that have enabled this? Uh, and it's not that hard to figure it out. Um, so yeah, I think it's ultimately very bad for U.S. security. And, and, and I don't think it's inherently wrong for the United States to look at any region through the lens of U.S. security concerns. I think that in doing so in the Middle East, one could come to a very different conclusion about what are in the U.S. national security interests uh, that would lead you to different policies than those that we have implemented uh, over over the past several decades. Uh, again, maybe it's one where 
we say, well, why hasn't this region come to uh, develop its own security architecture that works for it? Why is it the United States has to remain a guarantor for so much of this? And why is it that U.S. weapons and technology and repressive technologies um, seem to be so necessary to maintaining uh, what could only be described as a pretty untenable status quo? Uh, and maybe it's that when you've been choosing people based off of exactly who you described, people that say, well, pick us because we'll give you security, we'll give you stability. Maybe it's actors that talk like that um, who aren't actually interested in maintaining uh, or developing uh, an independent security architecture for the region that works. Maybe these are people that are most interested in just from a day-to-day -day basis maintaining the flow of U.S. weapons and money and political and military support instead well, of trying to better the lives of their of their own people. Well, it was frustrating, especially after the horrific attacks of 9-11 and um, is the... Uh, what was being said by these pundits and politicians, uh, instead of looking at the root causes and they're just saying, hey, they hate us for our freedoms or they're radicalized because of their religion, when religion really doesn't have, it's it's more about what those people have been subjected to or has to do with, our, would, would you say that, that you know, simplifying it that, hey, they hate us for our, relig for our freedoms just uh, misses the point and in a way, gives an out to these politicians from dealing with you know what they're actually contributing to in the region uh, by supporting these repressive regimes that had they not been necessarily involved. Not to say that there's any justification for what happened on 9-11, but to try to understand why did these people decide to turn against America um, in the first place? And is it maybe because what America is doing in those countries? Absolutely. And, and it's not just what we're doing in these countries, it's what we're perceived to be responsible for. Um, you know, one of the observations that gets talked about is, is the idea of blowback. Um, and every once in a while this comes up. And interestingly, a lot of high profile uh, politicians and military officers have talked about this. General Petraeus has talked about it. I believe Stanley McChrystal has talked about it. Hillary Clinton has talked about it. And I think it was Petraeus that was speaking about this was many years ago now. Uh, I think it was during the surge in in, in Iraq, and, and and I think he was talking about the 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 incidents of IEDs on on the roads targeting uh, American forces and and the rates of occurrence of these. And the observation was is that hey, when the Israelis announce a new settlement expansion in the West Bank, there seems to be an uptick in attacks on American soldiers in Iraq. There seems to be an uptick in the IEDs that are planted trying to hurt and kill American soldiers. Now, are those American soldiers responsible for the settlement expansion in Israel? Of course not. <laughs> Was this something the United States government approved of? Not explicitly, no. But it has a, it ha, it ha, does have impact on Americans. It does have impact on our immediate security interests. And you know, that's not about religion per se. That's about, you know, very tangible policies that were being implemented by a government that is perceived to be very much in lockstep with the United States and which receives a kind of carte blanche in terms of the activities it can undertake uh, and largely avoid criticism uh, or let alone a shutoff in U.S. aid. Right. And yeah, I mean, people put these things together and and start to blame the United States for them, and, and it makes us fundamentally less secure. Um, before I turn it over to Summer, I just want to just make a disclaimer, because oftentimes whenever we talk about this on the show, we'll get this criticism or people, you know, that, you know, target our show and say, well, oh, look, he's blaming the U.S. for what happened on 9-11. I'm not doing that. It's the point of 
the issue of blowback and uh, understanding that what we do around the world will have an impact on us. I actually want America to be safer and a safer world. And I think that the policies of supporting dictators that are uh, using a harsh uh, violence against their own people actually turns those people, makes our world less safe, including uh, the United States. Summer, go ahead. Uh, Eli, one last uh, question. We have like a, a minute and a half to go. Did it make any difference and does it make any difference with which administration we have in the White House, like the activities that the United Arab Emirates was uh, doing in uh, Washington? Did it make any difference whether it was the Trump administration or the current administration? I mean, I, I think that they've had perhaps more success with some administrations than others. I think with the Trump administration, which again, Yusuf Al-Otaiba's emails, he was shocked and appalled when Donald Trump was elected president, but they still you know, ran a strategy of influencing the Trump administration um, that was tailored to the Trump administration. Um, so I think they were probably able to push, maybe push the envelope a little further with the Trump administration with the blockade of Qatar. Um, but that said, this is not something that, uh, is a one-off occurrence or something that happened because the Trump administration was somehow more transactional um, or perceived as somehow more corrupt. This is part of a long-term strategy. This is something that that they have been spending a lot of money on, uh, exerting a lot of influence in Washington. Uh, and it would be foolish, frankly, to do it with just one administration in mind. Um, this is a long-term investment. And I think it goes back to what are core Emirati interests? And I think a core one is maintaining this incredibly tight relationship with the United States which benefits certainly the 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 Emirati leadership uh quite a bit um it's questionable how much it benefits the the citizens of the United Arab Emirates and I really find it questionable how much it benefits um the United States that ends up unfortunately uh paying some of those bills via um you know the perception that we're in lockstep with a country that's on the other side of the world that has very different values interests and security concerns than we do Thank you so much, Eli Clifton, Senior Advisor at the Quincy Institute and the Investigative Journalist at Large. Thank you so much for being on True Talk. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. So, Ahmed, we're nearing, I think, the end of the show. And um, the next yeah, uh, Thursday is Thanksgiving. Yeah. So we want to wish everyone a very happy Thanksgiving. Are you doing anything special, Ahmed? Um, yet to be not. I, I mean, my co-host. Seems no, I'm like here. Can you can you hear me? <laughs> oh, my phone. My I was muted. Uh, okay. Yeah, I'm here. Yeah. Um, no, happy Thanksgiving to you and to all our listeners. Uh, I don't know what I'm doing yet, but I'll, I'll be enjoying the time off. And my uh, brother tells me there aren't enough turkeys out there, so I oh. just myself a huge halal chicken. Okay. Well, I'm gonna stuff. enjoy. Uh, maybe I'll stop by your house unannounced, okay? <laughs> okay. Have a great weekend, everybody. Uh, WMNF uh, Tampa, uh, NPR News is next. And um, have a great weekend. Take care. This is uh, True Talk on WMNF.